Okay, good morning, all of you. I am Jeff Campbell in Abstentia, something like that. Um, so turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. There are handouts out there that you can use for note-taking. So did the cold temperature uh, make everybody snuggle down in their beds and Right, let's uh, let's pray together, and then I'd like to start reading at chapter one, verse sixteen, just to review, get your your memory going. Lord, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful passage. Your whole word is wonderful, and they're each each part is informing our minds and our hearts to worship you, to trust you, to esteem highly your word and lord may may this passage this morning in equip us to have discernment regarding false teachers thank you and i pray that you would be our teacher in jesus name amen okay let's start at verse 16 we do not follow cleverly devised tales excuse me we did not follow cleverly devised tales, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance, or literally such a voice as this, was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this voice made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So as you know, this was the Mount of Transfiguration experience where Peter, James, and John were with Jesus and he was glorified, shining brightly and God the Father spoke and they heard his voice. Then verse 19, so... We have the prophetic word made more sure. And the better translation, if you have the NAS version, you'll see there's a little number one by the, the word so, the first word, which is in italics. And that lets you know it's not there. The better translation, more literal, is we have the even more sure prophetic word. Then he says, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And let me just comment that that verse is, is a little awkward to translate. A better translation, according to 
the MacArthur Study Bible would be, um, this is not about interpretation so much as it is about the source, the origin of scripture. So the idea is that the word interpret means loose or untie. So the idea is that no human being can loose or untie God's word. But the Holy Spirit, as we know from 2 Timothy 3, was the one who breathed it out. It's not a matter of, as verse 21 says, no prophecy has ever been made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So that section leads up to the first word in chapter 2. But. But. In spite of the fact that we have the more sure word of prophecy, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. In their greed, they will exploit, exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not judge, spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, because all of that's true from the past history, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So Peter is declaring that even his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus glorified, hearing the Father speak from heaven, even that experience is not as certain as the written word of God in scripture. The Bible is more sure, more reliable, more usable, more helpful than experience. I met with an inmate yesterday <clears throat> at the jail and the long and the short of the hour plus time I spent with him, mostly listening, was he trusts his own experience. 
he doesn't trust the Bible. He doesn't read the Bible much. And he told me all these visions and dreams and his son who died earlier this year appearing to him. He trusts his experience. That's why he believes. And he said, I won't read the Bible unless I... I mean, there's all these translations. So I won't read the Bible unless I feel that this is God speaking to me. Sad, very sad. Peter's saying experience can't hold a candle to the written word of God. So scripture is superior. So 2 Peter was written to expose and defeat false teachers that were invading the church. Peter instructed Christians on how to defend themselves against false teachers. And I want to give you three ways that we find in the book of 2 Peter, coming up to chapter 2, how to defend yourself. Are you, do you know, even off the top of your head, how to defend yourself against false teachers? Here's three ways. First, no salvation. Know the Bible's doctrine of salvation. Know what being regenerate, regenerate really is, truly is. What the evidences of true saving faith are. So know salvation, the doctrine of salvation. Second, know the scriptures. Know that the Bible is truly the inspired word of God. Like we just read in the end of First Peter, uh, Second Peter one, and also Second Timothy three. Know that the the Bible, the written word, is sufficient. I love Second Peter or Second Timothy three seventeen, where it says that the man of God, the Christian, is thoroughly equipped for every good work, made adequate by the Scripture. There is nothing that we need in our fight against our own flesh, against the devil's lies and deceptions, against the world. There's nothing that we need that is lacking in Scripture. The last one, know, know the salvation, know Scripture, and then know your enemies. That's our outline for today. Deception is their weapon for infiltration, and doom is their destiny. Now, Maddie, if you would run that video right now, I want you to listen to this. This is for Miss Pentecost. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you like her eyeshadow. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, maybe she'll let you borrow oh, when you're older, when you're allowed to wear makeup. Oh, wait. You like her eyeshadow. Hold on. Yeah. So you all of a sudden well, got audio back there. Well, one of the things I think is about Miss Pentecost is she reminds us that we, we follow a God okay, let's who start calls it over, us to okay? not conform. Any questions for Miss Pentecost? Okay, this, this is a, an Episcopal priest who is at a Sunday school class in his church. And here's what he says. Okay, go ahead, try it again. No. 
uh, and to not be bound by the ways that the world confines us sometimes. That, okay, that so that's to live different. Audio isn't working. So start it again, and I'll play my audio. Do you have any questions for Ms. Pentecost? Okay, turn your audio off, please. For Ms. Pentecost. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's you a, like her eyeshadow. That's great. Yeah, a drag Maybe queen. Let you borrow it when you're older. In Sunday school. Well, one of the things I think is great about Miss Pentecost is she reminds us that we we follow a God who calls us to not conform to things of this world. Uh, that we're supposed to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, and that means that what I think today may have to change tomorrow if I continue to renew my mind. And it's so cool that we serve a God that calls us to continue to grow and continue to, to change into something new uh, and to not be bound by the ways that the world confines us sometimes, that, that we're supposed to live differently. What was wrong with that? <laughs> no, specifically, how was that false teaching? Twisting scripture. What scripture verse did he take out of the context and turn it upside down to mean something opposite of what it really means? Romans 12.2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What did he make this renewing of your mind into? Accepting trans... trans. We're supposed to, here's this drag queen, you know, just accept this as this is good. We're supposed to change our minds. You've thought this was against God's will in the past. Now you've got to change your mind about that. This was in a church by a pastor. So deception is their weapon. So let's kind of look at the text. So verse 1 starts with that word, but... So what Peter is saying that even though we have the more sure prophetic word, in spite of that, some will still reject the written word and make up their own false words claiming that they got their words from God. So that's the, part, the part, point of the word but. It's a contrast. Then, he's, then he mentions false prophets and false teachers. The Greek word for false prophets are pseudo-prophetes, and false teachers are pseudo-didaskalos. Pseudo, what does pseudo mean? Yes, it means false. It also means counterfeit, in the form of. So what these people are, false teachers, false prophets, is they are persons who deliberately use deception, pretending to speak with God's authority as a prophet or a teacher, but they do not. Then <clears throat> Peter says, false prophets also arose among the people, which would have been the Israelites, just as, in the same way, as there will also be false teachers among you. So false teachers infiltrated Israel in the past. 
Deuteronomy chapter 13 warned that the false prophets would even give signs and wonders. Why don't you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. So verses 1 to 5, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, hmm, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So here the, the danger was quite powerful because they could use signs and wonders. And what are, what are we told in the, the Gospel of John as to why we should believe? What did Jesus say as to why we should believe that he is God? Why? Because of the miracles that he did. Exactly. He said, if you won't believe me, at least believe the works that I've done, which he meant miracles. So miracles are validations of a person's message. Now look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 13 also. Verses 1 to 3, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel, who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among the ruins. Skip down to verse 6. They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying, The Lord declares, when the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. So Peter is saying, this is the way it was in the past. This is the way it's going to be in your future, early church. And he says that they will come in secretly. They will secretly introduce false words, false teaching. They're never honest. They're never straightforward. They pose as pastors, as teachers, evangelists, missionaries, foreign Christian leaders who come in and give testimonies maybe. They may be natural leaders. They may have the, a gift of teaching just enough to mask the deadly error that they're giving out. And they give out destructive heresies. The word heresy in Greek means a teaching, a doctrine that causes division. So these are divisive ideas, but they're destructive. That means that they cause damage 
that cannot be repaired. That's pretty serious. In fact, the word heresy is the same word as perdition. Jesus called Judas the son of perdition. And Judas betrayed, his betrayal of Christ utterly destroyed him. So there was no possibility of repentance or restoration for him. But what about this phrase, even denying the master who bought them? Hmm. Well, we know who the master is, who is the purchase, purchaser of sinners. So in Peter's day, false teachers claimed Christ as their redeemer, yet they refused to accept his lordship, thus revealing that their true character was unregenerate, unregenerate enemies of the truth. They may not outwardly deny Christ's deity, his atonement, his resurrection, his second coming, but internally they adamantly refuse to submit to the sovereign rule of God in their lives. So this refers to repeated denial. They keep on teaching false doctrine. Even when they're confronted, They'll defend themselves, they'll argue back, they'll keep on, keep on, keep on. But what about this phrase, bought by the master? How can these false teachers have been bought by Christ? This is, the, this is where we encounter the, the discussion, we'll call it, the debate on the extent of the atonement. Well, are we to understand that Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his blood paid for the sins of these false teachers? It says they're bought by the master. You could, it could sound like that, but wait a minute. It says they deny the master. So how can they be saved, regenerate, if they deny him? They can't. So the best understanding of how we, and there's other passages that come into the whole discussion of the extent of the atonement. The best understanding is that Christ's atonement, which means covering, his covering of our sin, is that his atonement was adequate, sufficient, to pay for and cover all the sins of all sinners in all time. But his atonement didn't actually pay for the sins of everybody. If it did, what would we conclude? Nobody would be in hell. Everybody's sins would be paid for everybody would go to heaven because Christ's blood covered their sins. Well, the Bible does not teach that. The New Testament makes that very clear. That's not the case. So the best way to understand this is they, proclaim, they claim to be bought, 
they acted like they were bought. They said some of the right words about salvation, but they denied the master. Their false teaching denied the master. The example of the way they lived denied the master. So their sins were not actually paid for, can't be, if you take the context of the whole New Testament, especially Paul's teaching. So their denial shows that they were not saved. Well, when we get to verse 2, we start coming into their behavior. Sensuality. Many will follow their sensuality. What is sensuality? It just means an appeal to the physical senses, the physical appetites, physical pleasures, stimulating those. 1 John 2, 15 to 16 kind of summarizes it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's a good condensation of sensuality. And they malign the truth. The truth is maligned because of their teachings. Maligned basically means slandered, reviled, discounted, said to be not worth serious consideration. This is a common now, a very common perspective in our culture. Yes, Andrew. Well, he, the question is, was the man I spoke to yesterday at the jail, was his going by his experience and his feelings the result of false teaching, right? Is that true? Oh, yes, more oriented, yes. The, the Pentecostal charismatic folks are very much feelings oriented and experience oriented. And there's some good songs that, you know, have come out of Hillsong, for example, that have truth in them, but they're designed to get you feeling good. The music especially. In this particular case, as I listened to this guy for a long time, he had a lot of Bible knowledge. He could quote scripture. And when he quoted it, he quoted it accurately. But he always qualified it with, I don't really trust the Bible, I don't go to the Bible, I don't really read the Bible very much unless I feel this. So I've, I'm, I'm only guessing, I don't really know, but my, my guess is that he superimposed that idea of feelings and experiences, the real authority here, the real trustworthy source over the scripture uh, I wasn't, I didn't ask him what kind of church he went to or anything like that, but, so I, I don't think it was from him listening to false teachers. I think he was, it was his own uh, addition. So the truth is maligned. I started to say that in our culture, the, the, the data is that the percentage of, especially younger people, 45, 25 to 45, who are called nuns, have you heard of that, nuns? That is in polling, N-O-N-E, -E. 
No, not N-U-N-E. No, thank you, Kathleen. No, they don't wear a habit. They have a habit of saying, I have no religious preference. I don't believe in anything. The percentage of those in our culture is going up when, when polls or surveys are taken. And then it mentions greed. So these false teachers are sensual. They malign, the truth is maligned because of them, and they're greedy. They love money. Successful, prominent false teachers today, if you ever saw that movie, American Gospel, if you haven't seen it, I'd highly recommend it. In fact, there's two of them, isn't there? American Gospel 2 or something like that. Benny Hinn's nephew, Coasty Hinn, who traveled around with him on their private jet and stayed in exotic, luxurious hotels and resorts. Um, in a, and uh, who, who is the other guy? There's Creflo, Creflo Dollar and um, Stephen Furtick. Uh, they were all mentioned in there. There's another guy I can't think of. Anyway, he has a huge mansion they fly over the top of. These, these, this is common, but I want to warn you. Not all false teachers live in visible greed. If, a, if there's a false teacher who isn't wealthy and, and driving around on a limo and has his own private jet, that doesn't mean he's not, he or she is not a false teacher. So we go by what they teach. They exploit, that is, their users. They manipulate people by their deception for their own personal gain. The comfort that Peter offers to us is that dis their destruction is not asleep. Their destruction is not asleep. That was very comforting to me just a few months ago when I was very foolish and I believed some scammers who called me on the phone and pretended. And because I had experienced fraud on my bank accounts in the past several times, I believed them and lost a large sum of money. My comfort is their destruction is not asleep. And that's the comfort that Paul gives. So the second section, verses 4 to 10a, is doom is their destiny for their iniquity. Doom is their destiny. So if you look at verse 3, it says their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So their judgment, when their guilt is exposed the falsity of their words is laid out clear so it's easy to see. God is not, a, he's not asleep on the job. He's not idle. It's not like my laptop when I close the lid, it goes to sleep. The lid on God's judgment's not closed. It's waiting 
his time. And then Peter goes on to give assurance to the readers of of this epistle of his that God's actions in the past, both actions of wrath and judgment on false prophets, on wicked people, and his rescuing, like rescuing Noah and Lot and their, their families. So in verse 4, Peter says, God did not spare angels when they sinned. Obviously, demons. God's not like too many district attorneys these days who won't prosecute lawbreakers. Let them out on the streets to recommit their crimes. If you ever listen to John McGinnis on KFBK at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he talks about it a lot, former sheriff of Sacramento County. District attorneys, not prosecuting. Peter's point is God is not like that. Though God is long-suffering and patient, he hasn't left demons unaccountable. They're being housed in the, in the prison of the bottomless pit. This is the, the place, remember the, when Jesus was in uh, the Gentile area across the Jordan and he cast a demon out of the, the man in the tombs and there, there were what, 40 demons or a whole bunch of demons? How many? Legion, that's right, Legion. And so they pleaded with him, don't cast us into the bottomless pit, cast us into the pigs. So he cast them into the pigs. My wife and I attended a, an art, a Christian art conference in Sedona, Arizona. If you haven't been to Sedona, you need to go. Talk about the glory of God. But one artist painted a picture of this demons going into these pigs. And if you can picture it in your mind, here's the, the bank of the, the Sea of Galilee with a hillside coming up covered with grass. And two pigs in the foreground are in the water on their way down. Their mouths are open. You can hear their squeals. And it's a, such a graphic picture. He cast the demons into the pigs because they didn't want to go to the bottomless pit. So God's justice, Peter's point is, is not failing because it doesn't happen quickly, as quickly as we would like it to. And that is evidence that these false teachers are not going to get away with it. They're going to be held accountable. Verse 5, it says he didn't spare the ancient world. Obviously, Noah's world. He sent the flood, but he preserved. So here we have both sides of the coin of who God is, his compassion and grace and mercy, and to preserve Noah, and his wrath, his hatred of evil. So Noah was in God's witness protection program, and the godly were spared, and the ungodly were not. This is Peter's argument. They're not going to get away with it. In verse 6, he brings up 
the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that God destroyed to the point of ashes. Sodom and Gomorrah are still remembered today. In fact, there are some people, some, I don't know what they are, adventurers, archaeologists, who claim to have discovered the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know if it's really that or not. But remember, Peter is, was warning those people in the first century, these were in the past among the Israelites. They're going to be among you also. Are you familiar with Proposition 1? You should be. The Christian Resource Institute has exposed Proposition 1 that's on our ballot right now. And they say that it creates an unprecedented right for minors to undergo medically unnecessary gender transition surgeries. And the Alliance Defending Freedom concluded that Proposition 1 will interfere with the right of parents to raise, quote, raise and educate their children by cutting parents out of any of the children's medical decisions that fall under the intentionally vague wording of reproductive freedom. So here are the same kind of people that God judged in Sodom and Gomorrah who are increasing their influence and their power and deceiving Christians. There are churches that have homosexual pastors. Churches. And if you say homosexuality is a sin, you will be instantly jumped on as bigoted and harsh and unloving. This is part of the false teaching that we're living in the midst of. And Paul's or Peter's example of Lot is very instructive. Look at what he says. If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, saw and heard, do we see the sensual conduct that is allowed, even supported by false teachers? Do we see it? Is it visible? Is it easy to see? Of course. Do we hear it? Well, Lot, according to Peter was oppressed. That's a Greek word that means, it's a combination of the word down and the word labor. So oppressed means to be weighted down with labor of trying to live righteously amidst a constant barrage of visual and auditory evil and deception. I spoke to a young woman a while back who quit a good paying job because the environment that she worked in 
was full of swearing and dirty jokes and I don't know what all else. And it just wore her down. And she just finally said, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't hear this and see this and be around these people. Lot was like that, although he stayed. And he was tormented. Tormented day after day after day by their lawless deeds. But God rescued him, as we know. So again, Peter's point is, God's not off the job. These people will be held accountable, and God will protect his people. Right now, political leaders in, in our state, in our nation's capital, blatantly disregard the law of God. These people that Lot lived among lived in lawless deeds. So we have political leaders who are oppressing law-abiding, whether Christians or not, citizens. And Christians are the primary target. You, I hope, would, would have become informed enough to know that the ideology of critical theory that we've talked about here, Charles gave a couple of messages a year ago, the elders have spoken of it from time to time. Critical race theory, critical social justice theory, intersectionality, wokeness, all of that is a religion. Marxism is a religion. And the target is us. The big enemy is the church. And they are targeting us, and they're targeting churches. And they're being successful in getting their false ideologies into churches. God rescued Lot. He saved him from harm. His soul was saved. He's called a righteous man. But his temporal life suffered torment due to his compromise of living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember back then, the Jordan Valley was lush like the Garden of Eden, we're told. And he wanted to live in a beautiful, lush, easy place. So he was willing to get to, for the perks of that location to live among those people. We should learn a lesson from Lot. We have to learn a lesson. It's especially encouraging that Peter says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. God has the knowledge and the skill to rescue. I have seen several movies of Navy SEALs going in to rescue a captured CIA uh, person. And they have their SEAL training, but before they go on a mission like that, they have a model made up of the buildings, of the topography, they have maps. Then they, they 
play acted out of what they're going to do, of every place each person's going to go, and how the timing is going to be, and who's going to go here when, and who's going to be in the front, who's going to be in the back. They have hours and hours and hours of preparation, along with all their technology. They have knowledge and skill to go into really dangerous places. Well, God knows how to rescue. He is the great rescuer. He knows exactly who the enemy is. He knows where they're going to be. He knows how to rescue his people out of that danger. And then when we get to verse 10, it says that they despise authority. They indulge the flesh and they despise authority. Those two things go together. Whenever we sin, whenever I sin, I have to despise the authority of the Word of God and treat it as nothing. God says, don't be anxious for anything. But with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And yet, I choose to worry. So I just despise that command. Doesn't have anything to do with me. Doesn't apply. I don't need to do it. I relish it to under the rug. That's what false teachers do. They do it in a big way. They despise authority. So what authority are false teachers today despising? Hmm? What authority? God's word. Yeah. God's word is the ultimate authority. A lot of doctrinal statements and for churches say that we believe the word of God is the final authority for faith and practice. What we believe and how we live our lives. Well, what are false teachers, what authority are false teachers denying and despising today? The same. The word of God. According to scripture, all people are made in the image of God, right? Genesis 1. Therefore, all people are worthy of respect. Even if their behavior is not respectful. They have the dignity of having the image of God in them. So for Christians, prejudice, whether in favor or against a certain people group, is forbidden in scripture. So when evangelical pastors bring in critical race theory, or like Al Mohler has done, and I wouldn't say this unless it had been absolutely verified, hired professors for Southern Seminary who are teaching critical race theory in their classes. What do we do with that? Is, that, is this part of the whole false teaching uh, system that we are to have discernment about? What, what authority are political leaders despising? Well, we would say the Constitution, right? Yeah. But over that, it's still the Word of God. 
What's the source of the concepts that are in our Constitution? The National Center for Constitutional Studies goes through each statement in the Constitution, from we the people all the way to to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, and shows the scriptural basis for each one of those statements. So when political leaders despise the Constitution, it's ultimately much more than a political issue. It's they're despising the word of God. They despised the word of God then. They're despising the word of God now. They're despising the authority of God now that's spelled out in his word, the Bible. So the conclusion, since God knew whom to judge and whom to rescue in the past, and he was skilled and equipped to rescue the godly, then he surely knows how to do the same in the present or the future. That's Peter's argument. God was not an uncaring bystander then or now. He's on the job. He sees. He knows. He's far more grieved than we are. He's incredibly more holy than we can imagine. His timing for judgment, holding them accountable, for divine retributive intervention is prescribed by his wisdom and his plan. And we have to wait. So turn to the book of Malachi in your Bible. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. My Bible titles this, The Book of Remembrance. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. So who are these people that are speaking to one another? Those who feared the Lord. And the Lord gave attention and heard. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. This is the day of the Lord, the day of, we know, as the return of Christ. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Did you see that? You will again, they had lost the ability to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, to distinguish between true teaching, true prophecy, and false teaching. And the Lord is promising that in the future, when he comes and restores all things, then they again will be able to distinguish between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, 
for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day, which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. That was Peter's message. The day is coming. God will hold them accountable. So by way of application, Peter's description of false teachers encompasses many characteristics. The significant ones have to do with truth and correct doctrine. They're false teachers. They're false prophets. They use false words. They introduce destructive heresies. The truth is maligned because of them. So the focus is primarily on the truth. But in addition to that, they're sensual, they're greedy, they're secretive. Jude 3 says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith refers to the body of truth that we believe, that we trust, that we have faith in. So let me ask you some questions. I want to try to get down to the, where the rubber meets the road. Do false teachings and false teachers address only lofty doctrinal issues like salvation is faith plus works or the prosperity gospel or the seeker-sensitive church model or the modalism versus the biblical trinity as taught by T.D. Jakes or false healing claims or the word of faith teaching is that really all, I mean, those are big and very important things. But does false teaching get down to maybe less lofty, more day-to-day -day kind of ideas? Is false teaching only that you, sh you shouldn't have a drag queen story hour in your Sunday school and then rip Romans 12:2 out of context? Certainly it is. What about churches that have women pastors? Is that false teaching? Well, pastor has to be literally a one-wife kind of man. <laughs> it works, that's right. Oh, Kathleen. What about the many churches that refuse to practice Matthew 18 church discipline on sinning members because they say, oh, it'll offend people, and they won't like Jesus, the loving Jesus. Is that false teaching? Is that part of that whole thing? It's disobedience. What about the wisdom of the world, I'll call it, in books and seminars and video courses on parenting strategies that teach pop psychology in a form of syncretism with scripture. Is that false teaching? A mother once had an experience that caused her to see that she had not been using biblical instructions enough to train her children. She and her husband had a little, been a little bit hesitant 
to chastise with the rod and instead with their young children were using some of the parenting strategies that were heard from many of the modern thinkers as alternative, as an alternative to biblical instruction on parenting, disciplining children. This realization came that they had maybe fallen short on training. The realization came when her child's obedience in a potentially dangerous situation didn't happen. The command was given and ignored. Danger. This led her to question if her child was actually trained, according to Proverbs 22.6. Someone said that in the 70s, parents changed from telling their children to asking their children. Is that from the influence of false teaching? Is that in the church? Peter warned that false teaching will secretly introduce destructive heresies, split churches, stumble and confuse Christians. So to guard yourself and your family against false teaching, this requires that you have biblically informed discernment and that you have courage to resist pop trends and even possibly to be considered narrow or harsh, unkind, unloving. We've practiced church discipline here and we have been accused of being unlo unloving, legalistic. We can take as our comfort that their destruction is not asleep. In his way, in his time, God will hold them accountable. And you know what? One of his tools for doing that is us. We have to proclaim the truth unashamedly, accurately, gently, but firmly. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage, and thank you that it's clear, it's not hard to understand, like most of your word, is, it's, it's right there. Father, I pray that you would equip us with biblically informed discernment, with courage, and that we would be your voices, your feet, your hands, especially in this insane culture we live in. Lord, you only know what the days ahead hold, but we are the salt of the earth. Let us be salty. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.